Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, counting the days until Donald Trump leaves office. 20 days until the election, if we can fight him on all of the fronts. But today, let's take a step back from the daily election news, as tempting as it is to trash Trump and his campaign for misquoting Dr. Fauci, using him in an ad, politicizing science, or to prod the Biden team yet again to make sure that they realize that their swing voters are progressives. Let's just hold on that for now. We will get back to all of that. Today, let's take a breath. And as activists, let's just absorb the masterclass our conservative opponents are putting on in a long-term political thinking. This is a master class in political organizing and strategy, and we could learn from it, but we should also be aware of it. They may lose the White House. They may even lose control of the Senate, but they sure have not lost their focus on their long-term strategy of holding down voting so that they can keep power on behalf of capital for generations to come. You already know how they are working night and day to suppress voting in this election, both to deter people from voting by making it harder or scarier, and to keep those votes from being counted by fighting over every single ballot, all the way to the Supreme Court if they can. Of course, those votes, those votes, are people of color, immigrants, working people, elderly. But pay attention. Trump and the GOP are also working hard to suppress the vote for the next 10 years, at least. That is what yesterday's ruling by the Supreme Court is all about. It is upholding the Trump administration's plan to shut down the census count tomorrow. Even though experts say it isn't finished. These are census experts, people who specialize in this. Well, guess who gets undercounted by shutting down the count prematurely? Young people, people of color immigrants, and those who were afraid to answer the census takers because of their immigration status, even though the Constitution clearly states every single person should be counted, citizen or not. The Republicans are not stupid and they can count. They know the country is getting younger, more diverse, and more progressive. The demographic tide is running against them. It has been for three decades, two generations. But again, demography doesn't determine elections. Counted ballots determine elections. The longer Republicans can keep the demographic changes from being electoral change, the longer that they can cling to power. By suppressing the count, they hold down the number of congressional districts apportioned to communities of color. They hold down the revenue distributed to states with large numbers of immigrants. They even slow the shift of the electoral college votes from red states to blue. This is voter suppression on a massive scale and decades long in a timeline. It would be, I, I mean, I would definitely be impressed if I weren't so angry. But this is my manipulation of the census and it has two parts. The first is to disrupt the count before it's finished. That is if the victory Trump yesterday won at the Supreme Court. That's what that's about. But part two is just as cru crucial. In the midst of the pandemic, the Census Bureau announced it was slowing its schedule and extending the deadline from December 31st to next spring because of the pandemic. But that means the new president will be the one to sign off on the final count and send it to Congress. But then Trump's friend Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, 
overruled the Census Bureau and moved the deadline back to December 31st. That means that this president, Donald Trump, will make the final decision on the census count. It will be done and dusted before Joe Biden hopefully takes office. It is just like the Amy Coney Barrett power play, ran through a decision that will last for years in the final dying moments of this administration and hopefully the Republican Party. It is outrageous. Judges in California agreed and that they ruled that the administration should not cut short the count. But yesterday, the Supreme Court reversed those judges and upheld Trump and Wilbur Ross. The court's conservative majority, of course, signed off on this without a comment. But just as Sonia Sotomayor couldn't take it, she issued a dissenting opinion saying, quote, the harms associated with an inaccurate census are avoidable and intolerable. Amen to that. This fight is not over. The Supreme Court allowed Wilbur effing Ross to shut down the count tomorrow. So go fill out your census if you haven't done so already. But the legal fight continues over whether this president or the next one will have a final say over the count. So we have to keep watching this. We have to think long and remember this. If the conservative Supreme Court sends Roe v. Wade or the Affordable Care Act back to the states, there will be many states where the number of Democrats in the legislature will be influenced by whether Donald Trump or the next president controls the census. Republicans have been thinking this way for years. Obama took his eyes off the state legislatures during his time in office, and they lost around 1,200 seats. Not only do we have to win back these state houses and band-aid this mess, but we need to act strategically and forcefully block their efforts for years to come, and hopefully forever. Okay, we have a terrific show for you today. Shahid Buttar is here. Of course, he's challenging Nancy Pelosi. Then later, we have Kate Albright, Hannah, and Jordan Zacharin. But first, these are the stories at the top of my newsfeed. German Amazon workers went on strike yesterday for Prime Day. Their demands included better pay, freedom from surveillance, and safe working conditions. The The strike was organized by Verdi, a German labor union, and it's estimated that thousands of workers participated. This strike reminds us that the struggle against exploitative corporations like Amazon is a global one, and that to fight that exploitation, we actually need global solidarity. The Journal of the American Medical Association reported that coronavirus deaths per capita in the U.S. are far higher compared to those of 18 other high-income countries. That is, with the resources and technology of care that this country has the capacity to provide to its sick, the high rate of deaths cannot be explained. But of course, when you take into account how this care has been commodified and how financial barriers prevent Americans from accessing the care that they need, the statistic makes perfect sense. The high-income America described in this study, in this study doesn't exist for hundreds of millions of working-class Americans. The 99% wasn't getting this wealth before COVID, and the pandemic has only made things worse. And more on the stimulus, Mitch McConnell announced that he is interested in rolling out a COVID-19 relief plan in the coming weeks. While McConnell has not mentioned direct payments in the recent proposal, talks between Nancy Pelosi and Mnuchin uh, showed that both sides agreed on the inclusion of these stimulus checks. Meanwhile, As the election draws nearer, 
his last remarks about withholding support from direct payment caused an outcry, Donald Trump is directing lawmakers to, quote, go big or go home in these latest negotiations. Welcome to the fight, Donald Trump. We're glad you woke up to the pandemic. Of course, now that it's hit him. All right, guys, uh, we will be back right after this with Shahid Buttar. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Shahid Buttar is here again with us. He is a civil rights attorney and activist. He was the director of grassroots advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And of course, he is running to be congressman uh, for the 12th district in California. He's running against Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Shahid, welcome. How you doing? Oh, you're on mute. Aha. Thanks for having me, Nomiki. It's great to be with you. So I, I want to start with this. Uh, yesterday, I'm sure you've seen this, uh, when CNN's Wolf Blitzer asked Nancy Pelosi why she won't move forward on a recent stimulus plan, Pelosi went on the defensive. Uh, she made it clear that advancing a stimulus plan isn't her goal. And then she accused Blitzer of being a Republican apologist and then mocked Representative Ro Khanna's efforts to provide the stimulus to millions of Americans in need of it. I mean, it's just good to remember that, uh, of course, few people do more to help the Republicans than Nancy Pelosi. But let's let's just play that clip real quick. I'll tax credit in their proposal either. But let's not but go into that. Yeah, you evidently do that. not respect the chairman of the committees. Who I, re- wrote these I respect. Bills. I respect. And all I wish of you. you would respect the knowledge that goes into getting uh, uh, the, the meeting the needs of the American people. But again, you've been on JAG defending the administration all this time with no knowledge of the difference between our two bills. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to say that to you in all person. Right. Madam Speaker, these are, these are incredibly difficult times right now. Uh, and we'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much yeah. for joining no, we'll us. We'll leave it on the vote that you are not right on this, Wolf, and I hate to say that to All you, right. but I feel confident about it, and I feel confident about my colleagues, and I feel confidence in my chairs. And it's not about me. It's about millions of Americans who can't put food on the table, who can't pay the rent, and we represent them. And we represent them. And we represent them. These long food lines that we're seeing. I know you are. We know them. I'm I'm just saying. We represent them and we know them. As we We say. We know them. We represent them. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say. It is nowhere near perfect. Madam Speaker. Always the case, but we're not even close to the good. All right. Let's see what happens because every day is critically, critically important. Thanks so much Thank for joining us. Thank you for your us. sensitivity to our constituents' <laughs> needs. I am sensitive to them because I see them on the street begging for food, begging for money. Madam Speaker, thank you, you so much. Have you fed them? We feed them. We feed them. We'll continue this conversation down the road for sure. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thank you. I've seen that like five times and I keep catching another little uh, bit of it. I mean, let's just start off with this. Shahid, what is your district actually like? Uh, If I may just say how outrageous the clip is and the entitlement of a public servant who refuses to take questions from voters, who refuses to debate challengers for 30 years, who then has the audacity to deride the rare journalist who actually asks her a challenging question, the entitlement of that figure to me is outrageous. And San Francisco, if anything, uh, is a city that deserves a voice in Congress. It's a city with a unique voice, and it's one that is entirely unrepresented in our national legislature. The, The point that really jumps out at me, listening to Pelosi responding to Wolf Blitzer, is that at least our criminal president 
demonstrated the respect for our democratic norms to debate his opponent. And that's more than Nancy Pelosi can say. And when a criminal aspiring fascist tyrant can legitimately claim to respect democracy more than the leader of the so-called Democratic Party, we all have a problem. And, so and, I, and I also want to... Oh, you're referring to the fact that um, Speaker Pelosi has declined to do a debate with you as you're approaching 20 days before the election. That, but in the broader scope of... It's not just me she's refused to debate. She hasn't let the voters see her record in a generation. And it's not just her failure, it's a failure of the local press as well. And it's, it's, I guess my point here is that her response to Wolf is entirely on brand because this is a figure who frankly takes no questions. She's the last time she did a public, a public town hall in San Francisco was a year ago in the middle of a weekday afternoon on the West side. And if you had a button on it that indicated any interest in social justice issues, her private security force wouldn't let you in the building. So, you know, she doesn't take questions from voters and then she doesn't represent us in any meaningful way. The idea that Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, would have the audacity to talk about feeding us while she declines a stimulus measure. I mean, there is an eviction crisis unfolding across the country. Uh, millions of Americans have lost their jobs. People are struggling with putting food on the table and she's talking about feeding us while she declines the stimulus package that was three times the size of that put in place during the Obama administration. And her attitude of entitlement, again, is the thing that I find so outrageous. It's one thing not to show up for the needs of the American people. It's one thing not to debate a challenger. It's one thing to have the audacity to push back on a journalist asking a tough question. But the entitlement of a figure who frankly bears a lot of similarities to Trump. I mean, we're talking about two very wealthy people who govern through theater and are belligerent when challenged. And you know, I, I think that San Francisco deserves better. This country deserves better. And frankly, the future needs us to make better choices than sending people like that back to Congress. So, so what do you think her, you know, she plays a lot of politics, right? This is this is sort of her game, right? It's why she's been able to, to become speaker. Um, but I, I just don't understand what her game is in this move. Just she doesn't want to give Trump a win. But I mean, it, it's so it's so egregious, as you said at the start. It's so out of touch. And I mean, that's partly why Wolf Blitzer is usually pretty stone-faced and doesn't show any emotions. Um, I think that's why he, he, he pushed back so hard. It's so egregious that in a moment like this, when we're on the precipice of an economic collapse, which will only, even if Biden gets elected, it'll only be worse if Congress doesn't act and he'll have to deal with more. And Congress, of course, will have to deal with more. So why can't she just take a, you know, Miss, Miss I like to work with Republicans. We'll work with Republicans. You would hope that her longstanding supposed commitment to bipartisanship might find some expression now in the rare instance that it could be helpful. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I can't explain the speaker's actions. I mean, I can describe a few potential explanations for her MO, you know, her longstanding patterns of rhetorically claiming support for issues that she sells out in practice. I think a lot of that is driven, frankly, by her allegiances to Wall Street before San Francisco. Even in this case, however, that doesn't explain it because frankly, Wall Street wants to see a stimulus package pass also. Uh, and so her allegiance to Wall Street doesn't even explain here her, what I would describe as primarily a partisan position to deny the president a claim to you know some sort of policy victory. At the end of the day, the needs of a people in crisis are more important than politics, period. Mm -hmm. and, and this idea that Pelosi is unfortunately 
uh, not terribly strong in the face of the right-wing attack. That is also on brand. And I want to make this point relative to the SCOTUS hearings that are happening this week. A lot of people are outraged about the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and they should be. And not enough people are talking about the fact that Nancy Pelosi is one of the critical figures who let these hearings proceed. If she simply filed articles of impeachment, which would be entirely warranted for any number of reasons. Again, right. I mean, she just to be clear, the articles of impeachment she filed before were radically under-inclusive. She didn't address anything from the president's corruption to self-enrichment at public expense, his human rights abuses, his incitements to violence, his lies. None of that came into the original impeachment process, nor did a particular issue that has emerged in the months since, a very pernicious one, and that is his his conscious risks to public health. And that's another, frankly, impeachable offense. Any of those things would be legitimate grounds for the House to proceed with articles of impeachment. And here's the key, they would block the Senate from considering any nomination to the Supreme Court because they'd have to deal with the impeachment process first. So Nancy Pelosi is showing up, having this audacity with Wolf Blitzer to push back on questions about her supposedly master negotiation while she has resigned all of the arrows in her quiver that could have protected the court reproductive rights, labor rights, environmental rights, our country's jurisprudence from the continuing attack of a criminal president. This is a Speaker of the House who skates by, paving the path of the right wing, claiming to support progressive principles only because the press has failed to hold her accountable. And I, you know, another way to put this, there have been so many different people in the media landscape who've been commenting on that interview that you just played. You are the first person to interview her election challenger. And I would just ask, what does that say about our democracy? Well, I mean, it's also, she, she did this performative thing and she even admitted that it wasn't gonna go anywhere saying that, well, President Trump is unfit to be president given his current state, um, health state. And and then it just stopped. It was clearly, oh, but it's not gonna be brought up before the election. So I, I guess it, it, it really, it does seem very much uh, political. Like her, her whole, her whole strategy is to play this national level of politics. Is she doing anything on the ground right now? I mean, is she, is she acting like? I mean, not showing up for debates, not talking to voters is one thing, but is she actively campaigning? No, I mean the the last time, in, insofar as she's running ads on Facebook and sending mailers, yes. Is she present in the district? No, of course not. I mean, she's not. She's barely present in Washington in this case, right? I mean, uh, I, I unfortunately she doesn't show up for the district, and that's not a recent phenomenon. I would like to make this point clear as well. A lot of people, I occasionally get asked by folks who don't pay a lot of attention to politics, well, what happens if we lose a powerful voice for our city in Washington? Unfortunately, our city's powerful voice in Washington hasn't done much for San Francisco, frankly, in a long time. And there are a bunch of things that San Francisco needs that she just hasn't shown up for. One of them is among the worst cases of environmental racism in the country. We have an entire neighborhood the last black enclave in San Francisco has been poisoned for decades by the Navy because it returned ships there after using them to test nuclear bombs in the South Pacific. It was the site where the nuclear bombs that were deployed in over Japan, the only deployments of weapons of mass destruction against civilian populations in our species history, those bombs were manufactured in San Francisco. Is, is this the Hunter's Point situation? Exactly. Okay. That's exactly okay. right. One of our Jules T in her chat just uh, wanted to ask you specifically about that question. So that's perfect timing. And I appreciate Jules raising it. You know, it's, it's an issue that doesn't get enough 
uh, attention, frankly. And, and just to make a few things clear, Nancy Pelosi's role in the Hunter's Point scandal was pushing for the privatization of this land on which now private developers have built thousands of units of housing on radioactive soil. Wow. And and I don't know if that's, that's clearly not a service to the city, it's not a service to the community. It does indicate, like many other things, uh, where her allegiances lie. And you know, I think we should be very skeptical of wealthy people in public office in the first instance. And we should be particularly skeptical when they don't show up to defend their ideas. We should get even more skeptical when they don't show up to defend their ideas for 30 years. And we should be expansive in our criticism when the people who fail to hold them accountable include the entire press corps in both Washington and San Francisco. It's not just the case that she hasn't debated anyone since Ronald Reagan was the president. The number of reporters who have asked her why or if she will debate someone are exactly zero. And I think that that is a revealing reflection of the failure of our democracy well beyond the incumbent. I guess I'm trying to include the institutional press corps here. I mean, I see a crisis in our democracy ranging well beyond an aspiring tyrant in the White House and a threat to the election and a pandemic and climate chaos. I mean, the threats to the integrity of our democracy include the erosion of a press that frankly has demonstrated its inability to hold power accountable or public officials true to their own words. And they spend more time, you know, going after the left, uh, picking up on invented conspiracy theories, not, uh, you know, smear tactics. We we, we know the drill. I mean, it's it's very much a weapon to suppress um, any voices that might be pushing forward a working class agenda. So with that being said, I think was also very dissecting this interview even more. um, You know, Representative Ro Khanna is 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 her neighboring representative. Traditionally, there would, especially from the same side of the aisle um, and in the same caucus, you'd, you'd have a good rapport with with that representative. And it's not like you know, Rep. Khanna is he's um, you know unabashedly progressive. He's uh, unafraid of, of of taking on the powerful, but his his demeanor is pretty calm. The 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 animosity she exhibited towards him openly on this show, I mean, that alone should be a story in itself. Like. What is going on there? You know, what's happening in San Francisco? Clearly, it's a very progressive city, but there's also wealth disparity. I mean, uh, some of the, the the wealth disparity, as I believe, if not the starkest in the country, it is one of the top cities um, with wealth inequality. Uh, I mean, is that kind of what's what's happening? Is there's a battle between, um, I mean, essentially two sides? Is, is there, I, I know he's in the Progressive Caucus and she's frustrated with that, but... It just seems like she would at least try to be uh, more respectful towards her fellow representative. I certainly wish that she would be. I also would invite Rokana, if he's inclined to respond to the speaker's demonstration of disrespect, to consider endorsing our campaign to replace her, uh, especially because, frankly, we align on policy issues. And this is a point I'd like to make. I wouldn't ground the issue in San Francisco because it's not about San Francisco at all. Nancy Pelosi doesn't represent San Francisco. She does formally but in no way meaningfully does she represent San Francisco. She represents Wall Street uh, and the Pentagon, frankly. And in that tension, that's where the tension emerges. She is the voice of a national institutional uh, establishment that impedes the voice of the district that she formally represents in Congress. San Francisco has a consensus on universal health care. We have a consensus on climate justice and our elected voice in Washington stands against those principles. We have a local consensus uh, to promote civil rights and restrain policing. And we have a voice in Washington who just voted to expand police budgets and surveillance and name it 
after a person who was murdered by police whose name she couldn't get right at the press conference introducing the bill. And you know, that's our that's San Francisco's voice in Congress. And, and I'm running precisely because San Francisco needs a voice in Congress. And I dare say that Congress needs San Francisco to have a voice in it. And another way to put this is that you know, for 20 years, I've been clamoring for our country to chart a different course. When I was getting arrested trying to stop Bush's invasion of Iraq, when I was challenging Obama's deportations and drone strikes, I was arrested in the Senate during the Obama administration, raising questions raised by the Snowden revelations. I've been challenging Trump's corruption. And for that entire 20 years, Nancy Pelosi has held the water of Washington instead of San Francisco. And, and I just see the predictable result of that pattern playing out in real time as we're describing her exchange, for instance, with Wolf last night. Well, I mean, listen, it's not just that she represents Wall Street. She got into office because she, you know, her father was was also in office back in Baltimore, where she came from. She came from a political legacy family. But, you know, people say, oh, she didn't start her career until she had had like four or five kids. And, you know, it was really, no, 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 she was a fundraiser. She used her her position in the community, um, her husband's wealth, they would, would, would host uh, events for politicians so that even though she wasn't necessarily the front runner when she first ran, she was able to ice out everybody else because she had access. I mean, she literally ran as as a challenger on the line of I I have access, essentially. Like that was her her like even though she was a challenger and she'd never been elected before. She knew all these lawmakers in Washington because she had basically raised money for them. And that's that exactly. was her political play. And so it's just, I mean, it's not a shock. Like, this is her entire career. It's not like she started as an activist and then turned over. She has always been the Wall Street person. I'm so glad to hear you raise it because she, you know, survives politically by constructing a false image, both of her past and the present. And, you know, you're one of the first figures in media I've heard describe, in fact, her roots as a partisan party corporate fundraiser. And, and I think that that's particularly important now when we see the constitutional responsibility of Congress to check and balance the executive branch tested against the machinations and aspirations of an aspiring tyrant. And the question is, what qualifies a member of Congress? They swear an oath. We have also, I've sworn an oath just as a candidate to defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we sent people to Washington to effectuate that oath who know how to raise money. And I would just suggest that that's not the relevant criterion I know what it is like to resist authority. I'm a Muslim immigrant, constitutional lawyer, direct action activist, hip hop MC, grassroots organizer. I've been nothing but resisting institutional authority for 20 years. And frankly, I think that when we see the positions that Nancy Pelosi's taken, especially on issues from surveillance to torture to the president's military budget to this question before us now about the stimulus uh, measures and the needs of the American people, I don't think she even understands the constitution enough to be able to defend it, right? I mean, she seems to perceive these questions that she's having with Wolf through the lens of a challenge to her personal authority. And it's not about that at all. And it, and it seems quite clear to me that our elected leaders lack the sophistication to perform the constitutional responsibilities that they have been entrusted with. And that's exactly why we need to replace some people in Washington, not just the president, but his congressional enablers, including Nancy Pelosi too. Um, so let's talk a little bit about just the, the the dynamics of the race right now. California has this thing called the jungle primary where uh, the two highest vote earners, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, um, end up facing a runoff uh, that's in the primary. So now we have two, you're running as a Democrat, she's a Democrat, uh, so you're facing her head to head. 
uh, in the general election in 20 days. What what is the landscape right like right now? Like how does the the vote breakdown look for those of us who you know don't know San Francisco politics? I don't have any polls. No media organization has seen fit to pull the race. Wow. So it's me against Pelosi. There's no one else on the ballot. There's no Republican. I already beat all the Republicans. And I'm the first Democrat that she's ever faced in the 30 years since she went to Washington. It's one reason why you might think that media institutions might consider covering the campaign. But it is alarming to me that among local broadcast outlets in San Francisco, there are exactly two that have at any point even referred to our campaign, the local Pacifica radio affiliate and the local Fox News station. The, the whiteout covering our campaign includes ABC, NBC, CBS, the local NPR affiliate, all of the radio stations. And I, this just takes me back to the press. You know, I'm running, I'm running up against the strongest corporate politician on the planet and our vaunted free press in the United States and here in San Francisco hasn't shown up at all for this race. And even the local print publication and bloggers, the only thing that anybody locally has printed about me recently are lies, frankly, and that's not even confined to the local press. I mean, the, the UK Guardian is an outlet that's quoted me for my issue expertise going back for a decade. And literally the one time in the three years I've been running for Congress that they even referenced my campaign was in an inaccurate report that they refused to correct. And in the face of that, I mean, you asked me about the state of the race, I'll just take it back to the press. I mean, it is really a, a, our race is a test not of me or my voice, but of our democracy, ultimately. And the fact that the media landscape has proven itself so frankly barren and vacuous and distracted, to me, presents a really strong headwind. It's why I'm so grateful for, and frankly, entirely reliant on the support of volunteers. Uh, we have people from around the country that are actively phone banking, text banking with us right now. We have local teams doing everything from delivering signs across the city to socially distanced outdoor voter outreach actions. We have a street legal art car that we've been taking around the city. That's been amazing. That's cool. uh, and I'm grateful for all of that different, uh, all those different kinds of support. It's particularly critical precisely because the engines of our democracy, frankly, are failing. You know, it doesn't take a computer or a foreign intelligence agency to rig an election. Right. All you need is a press corps that is asleep at the switch. And, and that's exactly what we have or here. Or intentionally in doing so. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've, I ran for office and I was a victim of a, of a tremendous smear campaign in which verifiably false things were listed over and over again. And we kept coming back and it was just two publications, you know, the New York Times didn't pick it up, some publications that are a little bit more cautious about the kinds of smears they publish. Um, but these were right wing publications, you know, Politico founded by Republicans and the New York Post. And what I found through that was, you know, we had lawyers behind the scenes challenging them and they said, well, we don't deal with we don't deal with legal challenges until after we've published it. And then, I, you know, we said, well, what about your fact checkers? No fact checkers. So these are actually weapons of capitalism, of capital. You know, these publications are are funded by conferences uh, where real estate developers buy ads and do, you know, it, this, I mean, Politico specifically, that's what they do, as do several other publications. And, you know, I, when you said that thing about, like, they didn't publish anything about you until it was negative, that's exactly what happened with me. And right. you're seeing this across the country. It's not just, this happened with Alex Morse. Um, it happened, uh, you know, in some other races a little bit more uh, locally where where folks 
They'll take anything at face value, don't understand where it came from, don't under, don't look at the evidence, don't look at the specifics, but they'll put a bunch of stuff into these stories. And I'm urging you guys, because I think this is a great example, um, urging listeners, when you read these stories, to take to pause for a second. Because if you really, you know, what's great about Shah is your lawyer. And I remember when they went after me, a bunch of lawyers called me up and said, what is this? This is just like, a, like people being quoted saying like, I feel this way. And there was no there there. And I mean, it was a little bit more complicated in my case, but but I think that is it's really important when you're reading these stories to number one, think about what is the intention here? Where where is the actual evidence? Is this evidence actually something that um, matches up with the allegations? And I think when you you went on Sam Cedar um, Majority Report, and I think you made a very great um, you, you 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 broke it down in a in a more detailed way and that's the that's why folks you need to be given a chance to 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 speak out like if you're going to be a let if someone's going to allege something you have to be able to respond and um that's not happening in the press at all they'll take one little quote and then take it out of context and that's your response so they can look like real journalists in the guardian's case i mean it was an entirely different smear you know they took something i'd said about an anniversary and then they attributed it in an article about an event critical of the same anniversary that I did not attend, claiming that I was there, which I just think is so blatantly irresponsible. Uh, and, and not just irresponsible, it's one thing for press to be irresponsible. You would, it, in the context of a situation where the incumbent refuses to debate a challenger and there is this media whiteout, we're outspent 15 to one, it's not just irresponsible, it rises to the level un of unethical because this is press not punching up at authority but punching down at challengers to hold it That's accountable. Right. And it's not just the press failing to hold the incumbents accountable, it's the press actively serving as entrenchers of incumbents. That's right. And then just to take this one step even further, uh, you know, there are a couple uh, local outlets, uh, 48 Hills, formerly known as the San Francisco Bay Guardian, uh, and Broke Ass Stewart come to mind, who've recently published pieces claiming that I'm unqualified, which I just find frankly amusing because i don't think and i say this objectively i'm not i'm not a pompous person and i don't mean to boast here but i think it would be challenging to find someone running for congress who is more qualified than i am mm -hmm. and i am demonstrably you know you were talking before about pelosi's background as a fundraiser i am objectively demonstrably and irrefutably more qualified for congress than the incumbent was when she went to office and between denigrating my qualifications as a person of color and holding me to a different standard then the incumbent, I dare say that this reporting is not only unethical, irresponsible, but frankly racist and supportive of white supremacy. And these are not, frankly, right-wing outlets. Well, that, that's these the are... case, these are the, exactly. And so that's what's even more um, dangerous is that when, when you have, I mean, when it's the right-wing, like the New York Post, you kind of know what's coming with that, right? Right. Like you don't take it seriously. Um, you know, and, and they don't really get in trouble. Uh, they don't. I mean, especially if you're running for office, you, you don't have a lot of defense. You can't sue them for defamation because you're running for office. You're a public figure. So I just to unpack that for your listeners, yeah, the ahead, significance of that. When you're a public figure, it means that if someone prints lies about you, it's protected by the First Amendment unless you can prove that they knew they were printing lies, that, that they knew they were printing lies. And just to be clear, I actually have facts rising to that level in my case you know there were smears published knowingly false smears in our case but uh, i just want to point that out for your listeners who might have not gripped yeah. the significance of public figures for that principle 
And it's it's extremely hard to prove because, you know, you what are you going to do? Subpoena somebody's phone records and see who they were talking to in their emails. It's very, very, very hard to prove. Um, but I mean, and, and that's why the Alex Morris case, I think, was well, it wasn't necessarily the same story. They they were able to prove the line of of like how the smear came about. And that, I think, was why it was a great a lesson for the movement to understand, like, just don't take things at face value. Um and what I found, I find interesting about this, it always happens in the weeks before the election. Always. So if these guys are such judicious reporters and, you know, out there searching for what Shahid Buttar is, is, you know, is doing or what he's said in past speeches or at events, you know, it's the timing of it is, 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 is interesting, right? Um, and the that, selective citation. I mean, the last thing I just say here was that the idea that people would, journalists in particular, print accusations without corroboration and without actually checking their sources. And in some cases, you know, the intercept is particularly guilty of this, actively suppressing contrary voices and selectively choosing their sources to construct a narrative different from the facts. And I'm grateful that they finally printed another piece that corrected the errors of their first, but it took them two months. And during that two months, frankly, a lot of things happen, irre irretrievable things. And, you know, every person who promoted and continues still to promote the smears targeting me, I think they have some very challenging, possibly self-reflections with respect to race, Islamophobia, and the political implications of their actions. Because the, you know, the things that have helped Nancy Pelosi the most in our race were all lies told about me, weaponizing the press to advance a political critique. Uh, and, and I think that that's profoundly unfortunate, not for me, but for the kids in cages and whoever else Nancy exactly. Pelosi is going to team up with Joe Biden to bomb, you know, like if, if she goes back to Congress. I have a strong interest in making sure that our city has a voice in Congress that is aligned with it. And I think much of our city does, too. Much of our city, however, has been confused, again, because the press has been weaponized mm -hmm. in the services. Mm -hmm. You put it, I think, correctly of defending capital. And that's a point I want to, you know, beyond the political interests, beyond the races, there's a point here to be made, which is that the corporate press and even the independent press get bent in the service of capital against challenges to it. And that, that analysis to examine and identify capital as the antagonist is very important because it's the difference between a partisan critique that thinks about the parties as a problem and a political economic critique that is grounded in material reality. We have to be aware. That's right. Of what we're challenging, and capital is it at the end of the that's day. That's right, and and we and I think you know th this is a movement that's growing, and um, you know we we want to believe everybody, but that is an important thing to do. But you also have to understand this is a political game. I mean, these are the moments where I I, I greatly appreciated my conversations with Michael Brooks, who you and I both uh, did an event for, or I'm sorry, he, he and I did an event for you in, in New York. Yeah. But these yeah. are the kinds of conversations where it's like, you're playing, this is this is a dangerous game. This isn't an exercise in, in debate. This is about t actually taking on capital and they have all the mechanisms of power to defeat you. And they will absolutely find people to plant straw. I mean, that's politics 101. If you don't know that, it's time to wise up. It's, 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 this is a dangerous game. And you are challenging the most powerful Congress member with a, a, a you know, with a, in a time when progressives are on the move. And so um, those types of, of the weaponization of these smears and really 
planting stuff and uh, these journalists who are not being, you know, they're being disingenuous and the publications, which, of course, you know, media has been at, at a crisis for the last decade. And, you know, so many of those great investigative reporters that used to exist don't exist anymore because right. uh, newsrooms have cut them or they don't exist at all, the newsrooms. But with that being said, um, the goal of that is not just to smear somebody, but to reduce their coalition, because it's these coalitions that are built that defeat these incumbents. And, you know, the one thing I'll add about that is I I look to someone like Cori Bush because um, she also was challenging somebody who was part of the Congressional Black Caucus. And most folks didn't, even on the progressive side, just wanted to be hands off. And she shocked the world with her win because she had run before. Um, she'd gotten her name out there. People knew what type of organizer she was. And uh, also, you know, her opponent was not present. And you have done that, too. You've run before. You've got your name out there. You've organized. You've spoken to the people in whatever capacity you can. And, um, you know, they're trying very hard to take you on. But I, I really hope, you know, in the next 20 days that, that you're able to pull this off. And, and if not, please do it again. <laughs> I appreciate it. Two thoughts there. One, it's not really about me pulling it off. You know, a campaign is not a test, ultimately, of the candidate. It's a test of the coalition and our supporters, which is why people, you know, joining us to phone bank and text bank in these last final weeks are so important. And to the point of the coalition, we had assembled a very broad one here. And to your point about the smears, exactly what it did was take every self-described progressive organization in the city off the table. They've all neutralized themselves as the Speaker of the House is pushing back on Wolf Blitzer, trying to find any kind of stimulus for a people in crisis. The Harvey Milk Democratic Progressive LGBTQ Club endorsed that figure funding concentration camps instead of economic stimulus over one of the first marriage equality advocates in the country. And I see this, you know, the tendency not only of the press to fail to hold incumbents accountable, but of organized political clubs to vote against their own interests as, you know, an additional headwind to confront here. I see every group from the Sunrise Movement to the Justice Democrats, Progressive Democrats of America, Democratic Socialists, brand new Congress, every single one of them is on the sidelines in what is, frankly, one of the most pivotal congressional races in the country. And it is disappointing to me to see so many people abandon their own principles at a time when so much is at stake. And, you know, I'm still on the field. I'm running this race. We have tens of thousands of supporters. We have thousands of volunteers. And even without the support of the organized groups that I don't want to be too sharp about this, but I will say claim to stand for certain principles while abandoning them in the face of inconvenience. Uh, we're still doing the work. And, and when you were talking before about the weaponization of the press, I want to just bring it back to where we started and the entitlement of incumbents, because it is the entitlement of incumbents that allows them to weaponize this political inertia that keeps them in office. Tell me one good reason that Nancy Pelosi, having funded concentration camps, having supported his international corporate trade agreements, having expanded and extended his surveillance powers, having given him an unprecedented military budget, having slow walked and then lost a winnable impeachment process, any good reason she would be sent back to Congress, the only reason is a failure of our democratic process. And that mm -hmm. takes me back to the press, it takes me back to the clubs, you know, to see uh, other parts of the process failing to operate. All I can do is, is, is advocate for the issues as strongly as we can and reach all the voters in the district, and we're doing that. I might take this one step further. You know, I ran for office in 2018 for the first time after having at that point an 18-year history of advocacy, grassroots organizing, uh, and, and, and politically uh, inflected art. And 
And when I ran for office, it was largely because I've done all the things that one can do as a grassroots activist, hoping to influence the political process. You know, I've won local laws, I've pushed state laws, I've organized coalitions at the federal level, I've done, I've led nonprofits, I've done all those things. And I saw my voice in Congress remain unresponsive. So what do you do after all that? Well, you replace them. So I'm doing that, but I'm seeing that the process is broken in other places yeah. as I'm doing this. And, you know, it is a, in the last three weeks, the critical thing is how many voters can we reach? And so any of your listeners who care about climate justice or who are looking for fiscal stimulus or who care about universal health care or defunding the Pentagon or the police or restoring any modicum of migrant rights or human rights, they can join us on the phones and make a big difference wherever they're at. And I'll just invite people to check us out at shahid.fyi slash volunteer. We would love to have you. Shahid Buttar, thank you very much for joining for this extended interview. Uh, I hope that you have an opportunity to make your closing case to many more places uh, in the next 20 days. And we'll be watching this race extremely closely. Uh, best of luck to you. Thanks, Nomiki. Great to be with you. Thanks. All right, guys, we will be right back after the break with our panel. Uh, Jordan and Kate are in the house. So be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, I am excited because we have our, our, our reoccurring panelist with the one and only Jordan Zacharin and Kate Albright-Hanna, who has never joined the show. I'm super excited this, about this because Kate is um, one of those guests that we've asked to come on like 50 times and she's never able to join. And so finally we got her. Uh, so Jordan Zacharin is the, he runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. And Kate Albright-Hanna is a documentary filmmaker. She is a campaign operative and political analyst. I've uh, worked at CNN, MSNBC, the whole mix. And she's also run for office. So welcome to the show, guys. Uh, if you're okay with it, I would love to run a little bit long because we went long on um, Shahid Buttar. If, if you're cool, because we got a lot of news uh, to run through. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. So um, I want to start off with the 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 news that's literally taking place right now, which is uh, the hearings regarding Amy Coney Barrett, who is of course uh, the nominee to the Supreme Court by Donald Trump. And, you know, there are a couple of things that stood out um, in the last three days as we're on day three of, of these hearings. Uh, the big one that, that stood out for me today was this conversation over whether or not she is going to, over voting and whether or not she has actually uh, voted by mail in the past, she can't recall. And I mean, it just it just blows me away um, that she's basically getting away with this. But let, let's Jordan, what do you think about this? Her, her take on like voting by mail? I mean, I think, first of all, it doesn't really matter if she's done it or not. You know, it, it's that's the thing is like she said she's had friends and family who have done it. it. It really shouldn't matter. You know, and it's what's what's strange to me is that she keeps sitting there and saying, I can't comment on this. I can't comment on that. I can't comment on this. I can't comment on that. And these are just fundamental things. Yesterday, she was saying, you know, I couldn't tell you if voter intimidation is uh, you know, unconstitutional. That, that's fine. Of course, it's not okay. She was saying that, you know, maybe I can't say if the president could or couldn't move the election date. And that's a you know, congressional thing. So she just keeps tipping her hand by saying, I don't know. I don't know. Even with Roe v. Wade, I mean, Lindsey Graham literally said, she is, you know, pro-life. She is unashamedly pro-life. And then she's like, well, I, I couldn't say right now. I could not tell you how I feel. It's like when with Trump, they say there's a tweet for everything. Yes. For her, it's like a law review column or decision or, you know, letter written with her church for everything. 
uh, it, it's, it's incredible. She, you know, when she was asked about uh, the Affordable Care Act. So there's there's a lot of important things that are that are um, obviously voting, and it could it go to the Supreme Court if she were uh, nominee if she were to be um, appointed justice and, and approved through these hearings. Um, then there's the Affordable Care Act and the reversal of the Affordable Care Act. Kate, you worked on the Obama campaign in 2008 uh, and in the White House. You know, what's at stake here, I think, for a lot of folks, as much as we probably in this group are for Medicare for all and want to see it better, of course, is is the pre-existing conditions. And so when she was asked about whether or not uh, she has ever commented or had has views on the ACA, it, what was brought up is that she has actually spoken out. But she she says in an academic sense, in an academic sense, as a as a judge, I mean, what's your take on this, Kate? Are you is your audio good? I know we had a little bit of an issue with audio. Yeah, sorry. Can you hear me now? I'm having now, connection problems. Sorry, it's it's the world we live in. <laughs> I think she froze up. What? Looks like we're having a little bit of an issue. All right, I'm just gonna hold back for my internet to start working. Sorry. Oh, good. Let's let's just put her on pause until we figure out what's going on with the internet. Um, Jordan, I mean, what, what's your take on this ACA? Is if this answer of it was an academic response? What? I mean, I, it was three years ago. She wrote a thing in 2017, you know, saying that Chief Justice Roberts uh, pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond, beyond a plausible meeting to stay the statute, basically saying you know, she agreed with Scalia that it, you know, the severability clause, you know, if they do not have a tax, then the whole thing is bunk. And so I don't know if she did it as an academic. She was like about to serve as a judge. I don't know. Like opinions don't change that much in three years. You know, all of a sudden, you know, she wasn't, she didn't suffer something that would change her entirely. She took her legal doctrine, which she had for years, then went to the courts and continued to apply the same legal doctrine. Uh, unless, you know, she has some sort of lobotomy or just reset her brain in the last six months, I can't imagine she actually is not opposed to the Affordable Care Act. It is, um, it is incredibly frustrating, but what's most frustrating is that it won't matter. You know, like, right. if she said, I oppose the Affordable Care Act, she's more likely to get Republican votes. You know, like, uh, that's the thing to me. It's like Cory Gardner has already thrown his reelection to yeah. vote for her. There are Republicans who know they're going to lose in part because right. they support her. Tom Tillis, who's now, he can't even beat a guy who had the dorkiest sex scandal of all time, because uh, <laughs> in part because he is going to vote for Amy Coney Barrett. And so that's the really frustrating thing. I wish you would just tell the truth and be like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to destroy the ACA. What are you guys going to do about it? No, I mean, and that, that's exactly it. We, we said this at the top of the show that the Republicans are willing to throw the Senate. Mitch McConnell, we should say, is willing to lose the Senate and the presidency to preserve whatever semblance of conservatism could exist in the next, you know, several decades with with the Supreme Court and, and now with their ruling on the census as well. So, uh, Kate, we lost her. Are you good now? She's frozen up. Man, we got to get broadband uh, much, much better throughout the country. Um, so, I mean, with that being said, she she also uh, <laughs> there's there's quite a bit of a line of questioning here. Um, there's this 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 line about uh, keeping an open mind regarding cameras. It was one of the only things that she actually seemed to have an opinion on. So I, I think the question, like, just regarding, okay, so the Supreme Court, you can't have cameras in the Supreme Court, and she said she'd keep an open mind about accepting ca cameras, and that's the only thing she had an opinion on. But what I don't understand is why not just, like you said, not 
It's not that she's not saying what she thinks and the Republicans should just get away with it. It's that we don't know who she is. And if you're going to put forward any justice, what makes her so special if she's just coming in saying, well, maybe I'll have an open mind about cameras. Is it that hard to have an opinion about cameras in the courtroom? What's so controversial about this? Well, you know, she's she's a quote unquote originalist, which means that she says she'll stick to the right. law, she'll stick to the Constitution. I mean, first of all, it's, it's bunk, but I guess that's what you have to say. You cannot come out and say that I believe that everyone should have guns, no one should have health care, uh, abortion should be illegal, and slavery maybe wasn't so bad. You know, you can't come out and say that, so you have to cloak that in saying you're an originalist. Their beliefs are so abhorrent, you know, so awful, that if you were just to come out and say them, it is, you know, it would, it would I don't know if it would sink her nomination, but it would maybe sink the Republican Party. Uh, my hope is that by, you know, I don't think Democrats should have really even attended to these hearings, yeah, but my hope exactly. is that the fact that they asked these questions and it was so blatant where she stands and what she's going to do that even before she gets to decide a lot of these things, you know, the ACA may happen in November. I don't know if she's going to recuse herself. Probably not because she does whatever she wants, but hopefully that Democrats can use these, these quotes alone to say, look, this is why we need to expand the court. This is because, you know, the ACA is very popular. Roe v. Wade, uh, abortion rights are very popular. All these issues, Republicans and Amy Coney Barrett are in the minority on. So I'm hoping that, you know, I don't think Joe Biden's going to day one say, all right, let's expand the court. Let's go radical. Uh, that's not really who he is. But hoping that should he win, that these issues and the polling that are, is going to come afterwards will help the Democrats make the case and make the case to Democrats to do it and they won't suffer the consequences. So so what's the path to expanding the court? Um, I mean, the, what actually needs to happen in terms if Joe Biden were elected and he decides this is what I want to do? How do you whip those votes? How do you make that happen? And and just alternatively, I mean, some Democrats are like, well, this is dangerous because, you know, say the Republicans uh, win the House again or win the uh, win the Senate again and win the presidency again. This could all happen. They could just stack it with more more justices. Now, my opinion on that just straight up is demographics don't work in that favor. And that's why they're doing everything they can to fight demographics. But I mean, what's the process? Kate, are you is your how's your sound going? She's back again. <laughs> the, we know what Kate looks like. <laughs> I, I, I want to. I want to know her insight. She's, she works. She's a grassroots campaigner. She works with campaigns. I like. I, I want to know. I, I don't know She'll the answer. <laughs> I want to know what she has to say. <laughs> All right, Jordan. Thanks for being a good sport about this, by the way. Yeah, of course. You know, um, technology. I, you know, it is what it is. But well, what is the pathway forward? Well, Democrats they like to live to not fight another day. They're so obsessed with just making it to the next to the next fight, even with the, with the stimulus, right? Like we're probably not going to get a stimulus in part because they wouldn't do it for months and months and months and months, which they had. But they're obsessed with not fighting another day. I think what they need to realize is that I hope what they realize is that people weren't voting because they loved John Hickenlooper. No one's voting him into the Senate <laughs> because of that. No one's like, oh, Cal Cunningham, you're the best. You know, no one's going to say Teresa Greenfield, you really yeah. inspired me. They're voting because they want big changes. And I think Democrats have to realize that. You know, Joe Biden got the presidential nomination really before COVID. I don't think he would have gotten it otherwise. And because every other moderate candidate backed him up, you know, it was it was a kind of a big pylon. And I hope that they realize that they need to go big or go home. And, you know, my hope and what, I, what I'm going to do, and I'm sure you're going to do, is take all the grassroots energy that we've helped marshal up for these last bunch of months and put it towards Democrats. And, you know, I know, uh, you know Kate knows it well after Obama was elected in 2008. You know, there were a lot of things that he did that Democrats or grassroots people and progressives didn't really like, you know, who he put in offices, who he put in cabinets and whatnot. But there wasn't that organized energy. And it's going to be incumbent on us more than Democrats in office 
to right. force that expansion along with many other things. But I don't think that just all of a sudden Chuck Schumer is going to be like, yeah, let's change everything. I, I've been here my entire career, but let's just change it because, uh, you know, I think that'll be fun. And, and I mean, that goes to the point that uh, we start off with Shahid Buttar, who's challenging Nancy Pelosi. You know, Nancy Pelosi was is reluctant right now to to accept the stimulus package. And Mitch McConnell's talking about a COVID relief package. And, and I mean, when Republicans are making these cases, whether or not they get passed or not, which, you know, I, I still think that there's a good shot of this happening. I, I, I Now the do-nothings are the Democrats. I just understand right. how this is a smart strategy to wait it out. You couldn't wait out the Supreme Court, Nami. You didn't stall on that, but you want to stall on a stimulus package? Yeah, it's the one time Democrats take a stand, right? <laughs> one time they say, we're not going to do it. We're going we're gonna to hold out. It's remarkable. It's any time that they can do the wrong pol- thing politically. Um, I don't know. I mean, they, they pay pollsters so much money. I don't know what they're asking them. You know, like, what, what are the statistics they're getting from them saying, yes, we support Joe Biden and we don't want money? You know, right. um, I, 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 it blows my mind. I don't know that even a, passing a stimulus now would, would even help Republicans because no one's going to see a check for weeks and exactly. weeks and weeks. I mean, first of all, Trump needs to sign each and every one of them, right? You want to get his name on them last time? Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's got to put letters and the stamp benefits, you know, well, that's, the a job. that's a job, the stamper. Right, you know, that's true. I mean, providing jobs across does. the country. <laughs> and so it wouldn't even help. You know, I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, well, you did like 210,000 Americans die. We're so, I read like the true unemployment rate is 26%. You know, people who are not making enough. Uh, you know, if you count all adults 16 and over who don't have, uh, who are not making a living wage, it's 54% of the country, uh, 59% for, for African Americans. And so I don't think people are going to say, oh, you gave us $1,000. Well, you got you to return to office. We got to vote for you now. That's fine. And it's it's not like Nancy Pelosi or any of the Democrats are making a case of, OK, we are going to go big, but it's not going to happen in the next 20 days because we really want this to be a detailed plan. And we want we are prioritizing Americans. And it's actually the Republicans who are playing politics, trying to hold up this plan that we are putting you know together so that it actually solves a lot of these. It solves the eviction crisis. It solves, you know, uh, uh, it, it stimulates small businesses. Um, just not hearing it. Instead, One thing shouting. I remember the first time around was that Democrats and they circulated this and it was a big problem where Mitch McConnell was so obsessed with getting immunity for corporations, right. liability immunity. And that was a big sticking point. And I'm glad Democrats, you know, held off on that because that would be a nightmare. I don't know what Republicans are demanding right now that Democrat, if it's just politics or there's horrible things like that, that Steve Mnuchin and Mitch McConnell and whatnot are demanding. You know, I would like to know what's in it and why Democrats, if they don't want to pass it and it's more than just politics, what is so awful in it? You know, maybe that's, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't even know, like Trump has to win re-election. That's what they're, that's what they're including in the, in the bill, you know, like no voting machines for anybody. You know, well, the, yeah. the Postal Service cannot deliver mail for two weeks. I don't know what's in this bill that Republicans are trying to push, but I'd like to know that at least. Like, give me a reason why you don't want to, uh, why you don't want to pass it. I mean, maybe maybe there is an aspect of this that's um, and that, again, it comes down to Nancy Pelosi and whether or not she wants to speak about these things. But like in New York, for instance, um, of course, there's been uh, whether it's a, a an anarchist jurisdiction withholding funding to cities because they're labeled anarchist jurisdictions. But, you know, Governor Cuomo did the same thing today. He's withholding funds from New York, uh, specifically around schools because of how they're handling covid. Are you kidding me? Andrew Cuomo has a long history of withholding funds from New York City public schools. And he's just, this is the time. This is the time. 
what was remarkable with him is that he keeps stopping New York from doing the right thing. He did that near the beginning of it. He stopped the city from, you know, closing down a week earlier than they wanted to. He stopped, you know, uh, de Blasio taking over or putting certain restrictions on places in South Brooklyn where the COVID spread has been really bad. So what's remarkable to me is that he's saying, yeah, I'm not going to stop you from doing all this stuff, but then I'm going to penalize you because people won't stop doing this stuff. Exactly. Uh, and that, that's what's going to just like stop funding the subway. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, and blame it. You know, De Blasio is certainly uh, a bit of a goofball, and certainly hasn't really handled himself well through all of this. But I do kind of feel bad for him because Cuomo is just doing whatever he wants. You know, it's it's a remarkably terrible relationship, and you know, it's it's going to be really interesting when Democrats they almost have a they can win a supermajority this year in the yes. state senate. Uh, they can win a supermajority, and there's more and more progressive Democrats entering Albany, and so. When we dis- when we're finally able to start recovering, there's going to be things like the Wall Street tax, right? The stock tax that people are thinking about. Oh, maybe we should just enact this and not just refund all the money. And Cuomo is going to be facing a lot of tough decisions. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's rumored right now to be selected as Attorney General of uh, under the Biden administration. I think that's a, there are very few things you know, for for those of you who aren't old enough to remember. Andrew Cuomo was the Secretary of HUD in the Clinton administration when he was like my age. Um, 36, let me just be very clear. (laughs) (laughs) But he, uh, you know, so he has served in administration. It has to be something that is attractive enough for him to leave his kingdom of New York, which he's not just a kingdom of New York, that he he really is able to um, control all the levers of power and he plays multidimensional chess. He grew up, of course, as the son of a governor, uh, Mario Cuomo, and is very skilled in understanding the political relationships and dynamics on the ground. He's 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 scary. Uh, he's out of touch with working people. But who would replace him on behalf of capital? And I don't know if Wall Street uh, and a bunch of real estate companies and the charter school movement are are going to let Andrew Cuomo leave because the alternative could very well be somebody more progressive or doesn't have the abilities that he has to control all the mechanisms in New York State. Yeah, I definitely think Andrew Cuomo is kind of the the head of a dying breed in New York. And when he goes, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to be super easy because there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, there's Long Island exists still, right? People upstate exist. Uh, Kathy Hockiel, who is the lieutenant governor uh, from Buffalo, I don't think yeah. I've ever heard her speak, but uh, you know, she, <laughs> maybe she would be in line for that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it'd be like super easy to replace him, but there are for progressives, but there are you know a lot of lot of great prospects for for Democrats. I mean, are are you know uh, people who you know, they, they showed the great energy, right? Like Tiffany Cabon's yeah. running for city council. Like she's probably going to win. It's going to be, um, uh, you know, Democrats, progressives are really going to take over New York. And in terms of Andrew Cuomo being an attorney general, it's hard to do that when you just have so many ties to crime, you know, like, so his, his time in office has been marred by, you know, cover cover-ups and connections to people who are in jail. Uh, this is I not mean, a guy. It's, it's insane. Like, yeah. and when he ran for governor and, and Cynthia Nixon challenged him, it was like, People didn't even understand that his inner circle went to jail right. for pay-to-play schemes. Literally, his people that he called his brother, which is not his actual brother, but his right. third brother, second brother, um, Joe Prococo, you know, he's, he's in jail. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, and he was attorney general of New York, and I don't remember a particularly, you know, uh, exciting time for that. He, he came in after, like, the Wall Street crashed, and, and no one got prosecuted. And so I can't imagine, like, what is his priority going to be? you know, um, jailing, like, poor people? What is his, uh, uh, his people priority? People who jump the subways, the, the turnstiles. That's his priority. Yeah. True story. They're just yelling That'll, at the lawmakers. Yeah. yeah All I, the money I, that we need for the subway, it's, it's just going to come from turns, turnstile kids who can't afford to take the subway because of the economic conditions that, 
exist in New York, which are just going to be exacerbated. Um, Jordan, always a pleasure. Thanks for dealing with all the tech issues. You know, it's the world that we live in today. Uh, looking forward to seeing you next week. And Absolutely. we'll be watching these hearings. Super interesting. <laughs> Special thanks to Professor Harvey K, who is mixing it up in the live chat. Who else do we have here? Uh, thank you to our mods, of course. Bob, Billy, and Chokin for all your help. Uh, Jules T, thank you so much for your love and your support. RY, shout out. Uh, S Scout is taken. He says, or she says, uh, I don't know if someone has brought this up yet. At the end of MR, Majority Report, Sam Cedar mentioned that Pelosi is up for re-election as Speaker of the House also, and she needs to keep her committee heads happy. That is a very good point. So lots happening in the news. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs> very busy day. Um, yeah, I, 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 I can't wait until we at least get back to the normal rhythms um, of an electoral season, because it is always entertaining to be covering an election. But when they're not out there on the trail and news is happening that is that is seismic every single day, you know, it just makes makes our show uh, so much more fun to do. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to our guests, Jordan and Kate Albright-Hannah, and of course, to Shahid Buttar. And go help him out if you can. He needs that help. <laughs> <laughs>